Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Real Gym Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin of Last Night in Basketball, and he did two really good pieces recently on two topics I wanted to discuss anyway with whoever my guest was going to be, and that is Kawhi Leonard and the stretch that he's had and the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I thought Jared had really good pieces on that, reached out to him to discuss that, and of course, many other different things. And Jared is also offering a discount code for his awesome Last Night in Basketball blog. You go to lastnightinbasketball.com slash realgm. You can get a 30% discount, which is very cool. And the this episode is brought to you by FanDuel. You can go to fanduel.com slash Boston and new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet, which is very cool. Episode runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of really good stuff in here, not just on the Clippers and the Thunder. We get into some big picture stuff as well. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a good time. You've written recently, or let's say you've you've created content, because one of them was video, on, on two of the topics that I would have wanted to do with whoever my guest was on Real Jam Radio this week. Anyway, those being Kawhi Leonard and The Thunder. And I think we should start with Kawhi. And I mean, he has been at the forefront of this massive Clippers run. And while the stats for December are not necessarily, you know, predictive moving forward, just because very few people ever do this for a nine game stretch, much less like 70 games or whatever, 73% true shooting on 27 usage. And the Clippers have won every single game he has played in, in this month. Yeah, he had um, an 11 game stretch that's still ongoing right now because he didn't play last night where he's shot 50% 50% or better in all 11 games, averaging 29.2 points, 6.4 rebounds, 3.6 assists on a 62-53-91 shooting line. Um, he had seven game, or six games in a row of 27 or more points and 56% shooting or better, and that's like the second longest streak in NBA history. It's like LeBron, Shaq, and two other guys, I think, all had seven-game streaks. I can't remember who the other two were, but... I mean, it's just ridiculous what he's doing right now. The the video that you mentioned on Kawhi broke down like his isolation scoring, which to me is like the real way you can tell that he's back to being the guy that he was. Because you know, obviously there's the defense and everything, but offensively to me, it's when you just simply can't stop him one on one. Like that's when he's at his best. It's not pick and roll, and it's not you know passing or anything like that. It's just like him breaking down the guy in front of him and going to you know the pull up, the step back, the turnaround, the fadeaway, like just bullying his way through guys. Like when he's doing that, and he, and right now he's doing it literally better than he ever has in his career. Like most efficient isolation scoring season of his career, and these last eleven games I mentioned, it's been even better. It's ridiculous. Part of why it's so exciting, and I mean, Kawhi has some quotes to this effect, which are which are even more exciting about like how he's looking more like himself. And while this is an outsized version, as you mentioned with his isolation scoring of what he has done before, we're in the realm, you know, like this is this is an extreme version, but a you know, like within the regression to the mean version of what he has done before, and. There is a an internal frustration a little bit with me that's like right as I was out on the Clippers, he and Paul and everyone else are pulling me back in. But this is what I was hoping for all those times that it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, like I actually wrote about the Clippers earlier this week, too, as a whole, just about like their their winning streak and like that's what's right, been going yeah. on with them since basically since they made their lineup change and 
drop Russell Westbrook in favor of Terrence Mann in the starting lineup. And it's like, obviously we can't know if this is going to pay off for them the way they wanted it to, like May and June or five and six months away. But like right now, this is exactly what they wanted it to look like or hoped that it would look like. Like they're just as scary as I think they imagined they would be in terms of the ways that they can challenge teams offensively. Like you have the hardened pick and roll and distribution stuff. You have Kawhi, who's just like absolutely unstoppable one-on-one. And then you have Paul George, who sort of like combines the two of those and plays off of those two guys, like as well as any sort of secondary star can, like he's so well suited to that second side attacking role due to his combination of shooting and like pump and drive ability and the ability to be like an actual playmaker from that second side. Like it, it all just works incredibly well together. And then the way that guys like, like Zubats is protecting the rim really well this year. Westbrook has played pretty well off the bench. Their other guys are making shots. Like it just all fits exactly how I would imagine that they thought it would, but it's December, you know? So <laughs> we don't really know if it's going to work out the way they want it to. For sure. And that perspective, I mean, part of what makes the Clippers such a important, fascinating story. I mean, yes, they have these three high profile players who are all free agents for the upcoming the upcoming class, assuming the player option decisions go as expected. But it's also just how does everyone involved to find success? And so to have this level of play, it is extremely valuable. And this, you know, not only strengthening potentially your seed, and they had that really cold stretch after they acquired Harden when they were trying to figure out the roster. So they did have some ground to make up. But so, I mean, you do have this idea of it's like, well, it doesn't really count until then. But the other essential part of this is that as well as certain teams have played at different moments in time, I don't think that anyone is running and hiding in the West in terms of as a playoff team. There are, you know, Minnesota's record is ridiculous at 21 and 6, and Denver, when you consider their injuries and everything else, like they're doing well. And, and the Clippers are well behind those guys if we're talking pure wins and losses at this point. But as you know, and we've talked about this a lot over the years, there is a significant difference between playoff basketball and regular season basketball, playoff coaching and regular season coaching. And so for the Clippers, this is providing ammunition to say when the lights get brighter, this could work. Could is not will, but could is still good for them to have. Yeah, I mean, I think that the basketball theory to me now that I've watched them over these last couple of weeks, now that they've been playing better, like the basketball theory to me, I think makes sense. And, you know, maybe there are teams like if you go small against them in the playoffs and you can sort of stretch Zubats out, then maybe that's something that can work against them. I don't know that they necessarily have a small ball set like a small center group that I love right now, but that's the kind of thing you can maybe but find it, on like the buyout market. If they can unearth PJ Tucker, who is on their roster, that could potentially help. But yeah, it's and I mean, there are the challenges of like, how are they going to deal with Jokic? Zubats did play him very well in that game. Jokic had like his worst field goal percentage game of his of his current recent career um, in that one. But you know, in a seven game series, that could be a real challenge. But I mean, there aren't that many teams who have enough players to throw at, particularly Kawhi and PG. I think there's actually an argument that teams could be handling James Harden a little bit differently and offensively and defensively than they are. But I mean, the overall talent level is good. And the Clippers have the strength that even if they don't have perfect players for like the other spots, you know, like the how, how they're going to, you know, the fourth and fifth starters and closers and then kind of structuring the rotation, they need less from those players. And so there will be stretches where Terrence Mann is great. There will be stretches where Norman Powell can do it or Zubats, as you mentioned. And they can't get the same level of buyout players as they could before with the new CBA rules. But they also don't need as much from those players as some buyout potential teams could, like, let's say, the Warriors. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true as currently constructed and as currently healthy. Sure. Um, and I just it's it's obviously just a much bigger risk with these guys than it is with other teams and not just Kawhi and PG, but Harden too, you know, like they're all in their mid to late thirties or actually, I guess they're all in their mid thirties at this point. Um, and obviously that carries with it risks of its own. We know the Kawhi and PG obviously have extensive injury histories, you know, and Harden has had issues of his own in injury wise and effort wise and different things wise. Like 
this only lasts as long as the honeymoon period between Harden and the Clippers lasts, I, I would say. And who knows how long that's going to last. Um, I think right now, like he came in and he was like, you know, I'm not a system player. I am the system. And one of the things I found in the tracking data was that they are kind of letting him be that right now. Like Kawhi and PG are tucking the ball and holding the ball less often this year than they have at like any time in recent memory in terms of like the, the time the ball is actually in their hands while the Clippers are on offense. And with Kawhi, just like his, you know, touches per game or touches per 100 and dribbles per touch and seconds per touch and things like that, like it is they're letting Harden do his thing and these guys are still able to do the things that they do really well despite having the ball less often that's you know it's it's pretty incredible what they're able to do but that's also i think a delicate balance to strike in terms of keeping everybody happy and finding the right balance like what happens if Harden isn't shooting 45% from 3 for a stretch he's still going to have the ball in his hands this often and things like that We'll have to see. And the honeymoon period is a great way to phrase it. And and the shooting has been surprising. I've also been surprised by how little Ty Lue has gone to lineups with Harden and no Kawhi or Paul George. For me, that was one of the theories of the acquisition was that Harden could be a real floor raiser. Those minutes have actually gone extremely well, but it's only 124 cleaning the glass possessions so far this year where Harden has been on the floor without Kawhi and PG. Just to have it out there, that group has been terrible defensively, 122.9, but they're still a plus 10 roughly in net rating because they have a 132 offense offensive rating. And so you, you don't necessarily expect all of that to continue. For example, that group is shooting 46% from three. That, that's going to tone down. But they also, you know, there are plenty of ways that the the defense can improve off of what it was before and the structure. And like, so the theory that I had had. I don't know if that's true, if those groups are like Westbrook, Powell, Harden. uh, I mean, so what I had thought was going to happen with that was that it was going to be that Zubats would be in a lot of those lineups because Harden is such a good pocket passer, pick and roll player that you could kind of make that bread and butter, especially because they don't really have that other pick and roll screener in their arsenal Tice can do some of it but Tice functions a little bit differently and it's generally what they've done has worked so far I wonder what additional experimentation will happen I do think Tice has done a pretty good job with uh, the hard and pick and rolls in terms of he is maybe the best Gortat screener in the he league. Is, yeah, I, I picked it up in Boston, yeah. Yeah, and when you get Harden moving toward the rim, it's so valuable, um, especially because he's not necessarily someone that's going to blow by guys with speed anymore. He is more going to beat them with, with craft and power, and when you can get that additional space between him and the help defender, I think that that's really valuable. Um, I do think Plumley, when he comes back, can be more of a vertical threat than Tice is in pick and rolls. He's good on like the short roll kind of stuff too, but having a lob partner with Harden, I think always works really well. It doesn't seem like the Clippers have a ton of other buttons to push. They do have this opportunity, which you and I both discussed of, you know, with the CBA having more stringent rules that actually kick in a little bit later. That was a part of what fueled not only the Harden trade, but also the Beal and Lillard deals separately and and Drew Holiday to the Celtics I guess that because that was a separate transaction so they have some they have somewhat of an avenue there but the Clippers don't have a a lot of like extraneous salary necessarily or we don't know Steve Ballmer's appetite for taking on even more salary maybe so I wonder how different their team if at all is going to look in April from the like the 15-man roster perspective than it does right now I can't imagine, honestly, that it would be that different unless they make another trade. Like, how much is there really going to be in terms of the buyout market? I mean, I understand. Like, does the, do the buyout rules not kick in until next year, or are those already in those effect? are in effect this year? Okay, so, so then any I can't anybody that the roster yeah, would look that different? Anybody who makes the short version of it is anybody who makes more than the non-taxpayer mid-level exception this year. If they got get bought out, they are not allowed to sign with any team that is over the second apron. And there are more second apron teams this year than maybe we expected, or teams that are close enough where it might get a little bit dicey. And well, the, the non-taxpayer mid-level is a pretty high salary, though. So if, the, if there's somebody that's like. Um, 
what is what is the non-taxpayer now? Is that like six million, something like that? Oh no, the non-taxpayer is over. It's over ten. Oh, it's, I mixed the two of them up. Yeah, the it's the it's uh, twelve four oh five this year. Oh wow! So they can sign almost anybody who gets bought out, pretty much. Like no nobody that's getting bought out of like a a max deal. Or, but I don't think there are any of those guys. But they can actually sign a decent player then. Probably they could should should one hit the market and it, it is a restriction, but it's it is kind of narrowly tailored after the like John Walls of the world rather than the the kind of the other levels of player and w- how will that affect the decision making of players and teams moving forward? We will have to see it. You know there are there are still guys who can do it. I mean, w- one of the questions that I'm going to be thinking about a lot this deadline and everything everything after is how aggressively are players and t- and going to and the representation going to try to set the table for where they want to be I talked about that with Keith Smith last week in terms of pre-agency but there's another factor in that which is do you want to try to get your guy traded before the deadline if if buyouts are less palatable and for some guys they are for some guys they are not so we we just don't quite know absolutely at this point and also, what are those buyout players going to value? Is it going to be playing time? Is it going to be being on a team with real title aspirations? We don't quite know yet. Let's move to the Thunder. And I thought that your piece on this for last night in basketball was really fascinating because you were able to pull some notable stats, the kind, of, the kind of thing that I wonder about but don't have a way of pulling. So I'm going to let you explain <laughs> what you did and what it led to. Yeah, um, so basically I saw this quote from Mark Dagnalt uh, a couple weeks ago where he was talking about how teams had been defending the Thunder recently and how they are were all like venturing outside of their typical schemes to guard against them. He talked about how Minnesota did it like they so they scored like 60 points uh, and a half against them and then Minnesota went to zone Dallas they started double teaming them they were like cross matching guys with Chet Holmgren and he was talking about how this is the first time that their offense is good enough that they're seeing teams try to get creative and try to throw them off by venturing outside of their usual schemes and because I had written a story a few years ago along with Krishna Narsu um, at 538 where we created uh, a couple of metrics <coughs> sorry about that um, where we created a couple of metrics called uh, aggression plus and variance plus which basically measure defensive coverages like it basically is a measurement of how often you'd send extra defenders at whatever the opposing action is like how often do you double team isolations or post-ups or blitz pick and rolls or blitz dribble handoffs or things like that. Like how much more often do you do that than the rest of the league? And then variance plus is like, how often do you change that stuff from game to game? So what we did was we found, we, we ran all of that stuff again for the last, you know, 11 years that there's been tracking data for and saw how often teams changed their scheme from their own base scheme against certain offenses and it turned out that the thunder were you know there have been uh you know 1000 or sorry 330 team seasons during that span and the thunder have seen opponents go outside of their base scheme um you know 23rd most often um out of that group and it's you know it's fourth in the league this year behind uh dallas boston and golden state which i think if you look at the you know the way those teams are constructed and who's on those teams i think it makes sense like dallas that's the team like they've seen teams go outside of their normal defense more than any team since 2013-14 and that's because dallas has luka Doncic. with 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 golden state it's steph curry and with boston this year i mean it's the combination of having tatum and jalen brown and porzingis and Derek white like there are so many different guys that you know you gotta just come up with different stuff to try to throw at them so mark dagnall in short was correct that teams are venturing outside of you know their their typical defense to defend against the thunder. And I also think that he is right, that it's a compliment to their offense. Like they're, they're doing it because it's really freaking hard to stop, you know, Shea Gilgis Alexander, just to figure out how to deal with Chet Holmgren. And uh, I just thought it was an interesting thing to dig into. And I found it interesting that 
a lot of times you hear coaches say this stuff and they're wrong. Uh, but this coach happened to be right. The concept of a, of a team inspiring a high variance plus the stat that, that you guys coined is is so fascinating and it makes a lot of intuitive sense as a as a barometer, not necessarily you know like of of how impactful. And I mean, I've used lots of phrasing in terms of like undeniability or like various different things about like how how one team affects the way another plays and how that can be such a great testament to what an individual player or a team concept can do. And you brought up the company that they're in and, and Dallas, it's not only Luca and Kyrie, it's also the severity of the like their other players. And I'm in and they've worked out extremely well with Derek Jones Jr. and Grant Williams and I mean Exum's having a really nice year. But it's it's a totally different paradigm than we're used to seeing. And so it makes sense that a team would defend that entirely differently, Steph Curry. And, and the Celtics in many ways are like that too because of their combination of spacing and having a lot of players who are comfortable with the ball in their hands. And so you think about you know who is more different than their compatriots. And those four teams, I think, do really stand out. OKC also, you know, one of the things you look for in that is not only the star power, but the success. OKC currently eighth, including the glass offensive rating. And when you consider they had, they do have some real strengths and they're shooting the ever-loving crap out of the ball right now. And so I really like, you know, opponent, a variance plus, however you want to define it, in terms of like how, how much you how much you inspire that sort of change and I, and I liked you went through in the piece and talked about how it part of what Degnault was saying and you kind of had to incorporate this is it's not the same as saying like variance off variance off of the um you know like within your play types you know like there are teams you and I've talked about the heat and the Raptors a lot over the years as uh, teams that do a lot of different things what you were trying to quantify and you eventually got to it is not necessarily how much they do normally, but how far they are deviating from what they do normally. Right. That's like the the point that he made with, you know, Minnesota, obviously it's a, it's a Rudy Gobert led defense. They're going to play like a ton of, you know, straight up drop coverage. A lot of times they are not going to send help at pick and rolls or isolations or dribble handoffs or anything like that because they're going to play it straight up and they're going to count on Rudy to clean everything up on the back line. But because Oklahoma City was so good against them, they went completely away from that in the second half of that game and just started uh, and, and started playing a bunch of zone. And then, you know, Dallas, that is another team that doesn't necessarily send a ton of extra defenders at things all the time, started blitzing every single action against them in the second half of that game. It's like, you know, if, if you were to play like the, the Knicks would never do this, but because the Knicks are a Tibbs defense and they're straight up drop, like one of the least aggressive defenses that, that you can play is, is that Tibbs style of defense. But if they were to suddenly start blitzing someone every time, like there was a game against the Cavs earlier this year where Donovan Mitchell was going off, and in the second half, they just came out and blitzed him as soon as he got across half court to get the ball out of his hands. That's the kind of thing that this version of Variance Plus is looking to measure, whereas like the regular version of Variance Plus is just like, do you see different stuff from night to night? Like, Do you see – you know, a bunch of like it, it's possible for teams to play you the same way, but for both of those schemes to be so far outside of their own scheme that it would show up in the what I wrote about the Thunder, but not show up in your offense's variance plus, if that makes sense. It does. And another example that I can point to from a game I attended personally is when the Warriors played the Brooklyn Nets about a week ago. <laughs> Steph Curry was extremely dominant in the first few minutes of the fourth quarter. And so Brooklyn started doubling him on the catch. I think this similar thing happened in the Portland game. I or I may be confusing the two of them. And but I think it was I think it was mostly in the um, Brooklyn game. And then what happened was they started with that. And then they were started carving them up, getting open shots for Clay Thompson and others. And then the counter was okay. Well, we'll do. We'll only double when you send a when you send another person in the action. And then they eventually develop something for that. And the the idea is basically you're deviating from what you're trying to do. And you know Curry is a clear player who does that. You know, not a, not a huge surprise there. And it you know not and the other important part to remember here is that most defenses aren't very malleable in the regular season like it's just part of that's due to personnel but a lot of it's due to coaching and available kind of capacity for everything like that there's very little practice time and everything else and so when you see opponents 
shift so much from that core idea, there's a reason for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, first of all, and, and I'm glad you mentioned Golden State also in that game against uh, the Nets because the thing that inspired the original story that Krishna and I wrote uh, a few years back, I think I believe we wrote it like during the bubble because that was the year after um, the Raptors had beaten Golden State in the finals. And obviously there was like a lot of high-profile stuff about how Nick Nurse was changing their defense, you know, night to night and within games and all these different things. And obviously they broke out the box and won against Steph. Um, and it had been something that I had wanted to measure through the previous season. And we figured out a way to do it. And that Raptors team in both, you know, 1819 and 1920, they were among both the most aggressive and the most variable defenses. And nowhere was that more, obvious than when they played Steph and when they played Luca, which is, you know, the other guys. And then I also think Golden State is important to bring up here because that was like the second half of Dagnall's quote was about how Golden State sees this type of thing more often than any other team. And because they've been seeing it for so long, they've developed answers to these things. And that's like the process that the Thunder have to go through now, where they have a good answer for your plan A defense but also your plan B and C defense. And that's the kind of thing that he was talking about, how his team needs to you know, just go through the process of learning how to do. Like, This is the youngest team in the NBA by minutes weighted age, which is ridiculous considering how good they've been so far. They're 18 and 8. Like, So the fact that they're already this good and that they're trying to develop this stuff, it's it might take some time, but also the process is going to be well worth it. I talked about this a little bit with T. Smith last week, but the Thunder have significant assets moving forward. And I got asked in a Discord chat for Dungeon Prime recently and a couple of, and they came up actually as a, a question on the NBA strategy stream on Thursday about like kind of where they should go from here. My answer was extremely context dependent, as it often is. You and I both have legal backgrounds. It's like, <laughs> oh, it depends on who's out there. It depends on what they're doing. But I also think that that's true because – so, for example, like I'm, I'm working on a piece uh, that will probably run at the Athletic next week about Jeremy Grant, and there's a little aside in that piece about how Jeremy Grant would be a wonderful fit for the Thunder because he can defend and he can do these other things well, and his game is his game his offensive role can be more scalable. But I also think that Jeremy Grant is a great example of why the Thunder situation is so complicated for Sam Presti, because while he would make them better and they could absolutely get him and it wouldn't like sabotage their books or anything like that, they should be aiming higher because they can. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The guy that I had been thinking of, because I feel like I had heard somewhere that they might be interested. I can't remember if it was um, you know, a, a friend who had sourced that or if I read it somewhere. Um, was Lowry Markinen, but then I remembered that his contract expires after next season, so they'd only be getting like a year and a half of him in a trade, and I'm not sure necessarily how interested they would be in that because they then have to pay him, and obviously they've got a bunch of guys coming up that they're going to have to pay. That financial context is extremely important, and I mean the realistic expectation for teams like this, and this comes up with the Pacers as well, is that, you know, they're probably, maybe they'll dip into the tax the Thunder have previously, but they're not going to go, you know, Balmer levels deep in there. And the cap, the tax are going to be going up. We don't know the exact amount because the TV deal is not agreed to and all that. Still, you kind of want to use that as a practical constraint, and especially until they've had some sort of like sustained success. Denver is a really good example of this. Like, yeah, Denver's more willing to pay the tax now than they were before, and they won a championship, and they did pay it last year, and they're paying it again this year. So if they can get there, that's a really a really good situation to be in, but you don't want to pencil them in as like $20 million over the tax line anytime before that. And considering how many players for them need raises over the next few years, it is going to be a practical challenge. The other challenge that I've been trying to reconcile with the Thunder is the kind of secondary playmaker and primary non-Shea playmaker issues where I'm more of a Jalen Williams guy than a Josh Giddy guy, at least at the moment. I'm a little bit concerned that neither of them is the non-Shea answer, that Jalen Williams fits better with Gildas Alexander because he can shoot better and you know his game isn't as dependent as with the ball in his hands. But 
do I I think there might be a path where they could actually use a a stabilizer, you know, like somebody who can run actions more consistently when Gildas Alexander is on the bench. That's interesting. I wonder if they think that like Kaysom Wallace can be that guy, at least with the bench units. Um, Possibly. I also love Wallace's fit with Shea because you need somebody who can defend point of attack and they have a couple options in that front, but Kaysom Wallace is, is definitely one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there's, there's always room for more secondary ball handlers on a team. Um, the question is whether those guys can be primary ball handlers in the, whatever it is, 12, 16, 14 minutes that, that Shea, is on the bench. I think if you have enough of them on the court together, you can sort of cobble it together that way. I, but, uh, but it's just a straight note. When I was young, when I was in like college and like really learning the NBA, I called this the, I'm in my brain. I called it the fractional point guard theory. The idea that you could fill playmaking with like three or four different guys. The, the league is actually more better suited to that now than it was back in like 2006. Yeah, I was I was thinking like the you know like the Voltron play like the playmaker sure. Voltron or whatever like it's it's the same concept. It was just the name I thought of uh, in my head. I, I do think it's interesting to think of it through the lens of Denver though. Like, what is their version of the Aaron Gordon trade? Like the one guy that locks this group really into place and makes everything greater than the sum of its parts. I sort of think they are already based on how they played this season um but it's it's an interesting concept to think of from from that perspective obviously just because denver just won the title and a lot of times you'll compare teams to the most recent title winner but also because they are and have been like a young up-and-coming team with an outright you know super duper star and another guy who's like on his way to being that and they have so many assets and they also have a bunch of guys who have been there for a while and seem like they're core players, but maybe you can package one or two of them together and get somebody who, you know, really raises the ceiling of the team, which is, you know, what, what Denver did twice, basically. The Aaron Gordon move, Cantavius Caldwell Pope also, I think, extremely important. Right, that was the, yeah. the second move. That the I was. second move. And then also Michael Porter Jr. getting better on defense. You know, the, the Nuggets not having as many places to attack. Jokic got a lot better, too. And parts of that, I think, could be elements of the Thunder model, too, where, you know, you need the internal improvement. And I'm going to keep— I also keep, think the part ahead. of that, like, part of the, the Nuggets being— good enough on defense last year was just that they were so big and so long Mm -hmm. um we've talked before about how the thunder are maybe smaller than they appear even though most of their guys have good positional size but they have a ton of length and that can be useful defensively obviously they also have length that we aren't totally seeing in the rotation now i don't know if or when Ushman Jang is going to be able to kind of fill a role for them. But he, you know, the, those are the kind of players that you roll the dice on in case it can possibly work. And consolidation trades don't really happen in the NBA. You get asked about that all the time. Okay, they do. And it's like, not really. The, the, some of the players they have who are good, who are on the fringes of their rotation, probably aren't going to move the needle too much in deal. But they are, they are credible sweeteners. And as a practical matter, you brought up the idea with Larry Markkinen of him being on this short-term contract, and unfortunately for the Thunder, they can't do what the Jazz at present can, which is a renegotiation and extension, which would mitigate the risk. You can just, you know, you use cap space to pay him more now, and then you build an extension. The Kings just did that with DeMontis Sabonis last offseason. I wonder, and it it's always a weird question to consider because it's the randomness that's involved. And, you know, going back to the Nuggets with the, like, Paul Millsap having that connection to the Denver area because he spent some time there growing up, of are there any players who, whether it's because they're intrigued by the talent level that they have, or maybe it's coaching, or, like, the connection with Shea or something else, that would be more interested than we expect in re-signing there because Sam Presti, like, it totally changes the way you think about OG and Anobi, for example. If you get, it can't be binding, but if you get preliminary indicators that, wow, I just put the emphasis there, weird, um, <laughs> that Anobi would be willing to re-sign. And you're presumably going to be doing that at or close to the 30% max, and that's going to make some of the math more difficult for them. But you could open up another universe probably a partial universe of additions if players are more interested in staying on the Thunder long term. Yeah, um, I was thinking, like, is there anybody that's Canadian and therefore knows Shea? Or, like, is there anybody that, 
went to Kentucky at the same time. Or like, I always think of like these kind of connections, like you know, uh, like Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox are now reunited from their Kentucky days. All the Villanova guys on the Knicks, uh, the the Magic have a bunch of Michigan guys on their uh, team. I mean, you can use the Villanova guys on the Knicks or the CAA guys on the Knicks. Yeah. Um, I think that's like slightly different. That's just sure. the, the front office priority as opposed to the uh, the player, the player priority. Well, and uh-huh. then there's all the like Team USA variants before of like guys right. that were on the same, even if it was like a World Cup team or anything like that, who have those who have that experience. Yeah, that's why I mentioned the Canadian guys, obviously, sure. because Shea is not a uh, not on Team USA. No, nope. but uh, I, I don't know if like RJ Barrett is the kind of guy that we're thinking of here. Probably not, and I mean another player who does a lot with the ball in his hands and probably shouldn't have it in the hands in his hands quite as much. And the other kind of another theory that's out there, and this connects with another team that I don't really want to discuss, but they OKC has the ability to. I brought up the universe of available players because of the assets they have. They could theoretically pry at least conversations loose with players that aren't necessarily in that and. I don't think it's going to happen for a variety of different reasons, but like we've wondered what what Cade Cunningham could do in a different system. This would be about is he as, from Oklahoma. I know he went to Oklahoma State. Is he from Oklahoma? He, I believe he is. Yeah, I believe he went to OK State because he's from Oklahoma. That's that's the guy we're looking for then. So with and and Cade, I mean, he, I, I sincerely well, doubt also he's going. He uh, has not shot well. He has not. He has not shot well. And but he was a good shooter in college, so, wasn't he? So, Cade, he's from Arlington, but he did choose to go to Stillwater. Um, yeah, I believe, yeah, he. I actually really liked his jump shot in the film that we saw at um, OK State. Shot forty percent on threes. You know, not ridiculous volume, but but for a college player, you're you're totally cool with it. And also because Cunningham, but but what I'm saying is, is more the idea of. They OKC can throw so many resources if there was somebody they identified, like the Aaron Gordon theory, but somebody who's better than Aaron Gordon was and is. Because if they just like, uh, like oh. let's say they went to Dallas and said, We'll give you 247 first round picks for Luca. That kind of I think that might be too that might be too far, but I mean you could throw a I mean I I the one that I've been dancing around for years in part because I thought they would have been such a good pairing in another place was Chet and Zion. Ooh, that's interesting. And but so, also, is that the guy that you want to go all in for from Oklahoma City's perspective with the with the the injury risk and things like that? Like if you're gonna take your big swing, I feel like it needs to be a little bit more of a sure thing for them than that. Totally fair. There and, and there's also, I mean, I invoke Jalen Brown a lot for this of the challenge of like the perfect sometimes is the enemy of the good. Where like I thought for years that he would be a great fit in Memphis, and then he just never became available because it was just too good, and Boston was too good. Mm-hmm. So you run into that, but I mean, just just the sheer volume. It is true to me that the Thunder. Depending on what happens with some of the picks they have from like Houston and a few others, they don't have that many high end, like phenomenal single assets, which those are the ones, you know, going back to like that old Lakings pick or some of these really good young players. I mean, or like all the stuff that the Lakers sent for Anthony Davis, because they just had this confluence of talented young players at the same time. Where those like OKC doesn't really have that like shiniest piece, but they can make up for it in volume. And so what they can do, I, I said, it's opening up conversations. Is just I don't know who that player is. I do know that they can they could potentially start it. I mean, if if they decided Markinen was the player, they could absolutely make a deal. Danny Ainge would accept. Danny Ainge might insist on getting like I don't know. Not Pokashevsky, he's too well known. Frank Kaminsky, um, sign him and then include him in the trade. <laughs> I was just gonna like you know some down roster player that like he's gonna insist on getting Lindy Waters in the deal, um, and that could scuttle things. I was thinking about whether OKC has because like, I mean Danny Ainge has a few player types, but like that kind of toolsy guard that doesn't really that doesn't have any singular one dominant skill. That might be Casein Wallace. Mm-hmm. You're like the deal only happens if Case and Wallace is in it. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. 
Snap into action this season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That is $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, which I love, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL, must be 21 or over and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. And there are a few of those, and incidentally, Utah is one of them. These franchises that have a lot of resources, I've brought this up a lot on Real Jam Radio over the course of this year, but OKC is clearly the best of, of that group. I want to move on to kind of open things up a little bit. We're not going to, you know, this isn't going to be an eternal conversation, but there is a lot of other interesting ground to tread. What is sticking out to you right now in the NBA? We're, you know, 2020-ish, 20, 20, oh, we're getting closer to 30 games in for most of these teams. Um, I do think there are some teams that seem like at least they're sort of coming back to earth a bit. Like we talked early in the season, um, like the Rockets, they're back down close to 500 now. Um, the Pacers are back down close to 500. Um, the Magic have lost four in a row. Um, I think it's interesting to see if those teams are like regressing way past the mean or if they can sort of stop those slides and sort of stabilize as playoff caliber teams. Um, I-, I think I'm more confident in Orlando being able to do that than I am right now in Indiana or Houston just because Orlando has a defense that I think even during this skid has been really, really good. Um, I'm not as confident, obviously, in Indiana's defense. Um, And if they're not scoring at, like, best of all time levels, their defense might be so bad that they can't make up for it. And then Houston, I got to see, like, they have these wild home road splits right now. Um, Unbelievable home road splits. Yeah, they are 11-2 and at home and 2-10 and on the road. And I just don't really know what to make of that right now. Like you, I wonder where the kind of those teams eventually slot in. And for both the Rockets and the Magic in particular, being pretty good, you know, Hovering around 500 and being potentially in the top six mix, ideally, would be a huge step forward. Like That would be significantly better than we expected for them going in. And probably is more realistic. Both teams have a path to improve in the short term if they want to. I don't know how hard they're going to push on those fronts. The Orlando also theoretically could use cap space moving forward, or they could, you know, they, they have some picks and, and Houston has their own kind of assets going each direction from their various different trades. And that's part of why I think things are opening up and it'll be, you know, Minnesota, they, they did lose that game to Philly. They're, they're unquestionably a very good team, but are they like one of the five best teams in the league? I'm going to have to see it moving forward. And Another big story for me that may end up just being a curiosity rather than anything else is John Morant being back in Memphis. Like, I mean, that that game against the Pelicans was one of the more fun, fascinating ones I've watched all year. And it is probably a lower bar, at least preliminarily in the West, to kind of get in the mix than we expected, partially due to the slow, slower than expected starts for teams like the Suns and the Warriors. However, it is important to note that even with their success recently, Memphis is 11 games below 500 and the Warriors are one. And so inevitably, so there are pro- right now there are 11 teams that are kind of in more directly in that mix in the West and 10 make it in the play-in. Inevitably, at least one is going to succumb to injuries. You know, we, hopefully it's no one, but it, 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 it will be at least one. S- can Memphis get back in it i'm skeptical but i also think they'll be extremely watchable no matter what yeah the grizzlies are uh six games back of the plan right now that is a big gap to make up um and obviously they're gonna have to do it without steven adams the rest of the way correct um maybe they get brandon clark back hopefully they'll get marcus smart back soon um that obviously in addition to having job back 
helps a lot, but it's also like it's just it's a significant gap. Like six games doesn't seem like a ton in the concept in the context of an eighty-two game season, but it's not an eighty-two game season anymore. It's like a fifty-five game season, and making up six games in that length of time is pretty difficult. You got to like just to go just to get to forty-one and forty-one, they have to go thirty-three and twenty-two the rest of the way. Like that's it's hard, you know. Thirty-three and twenty-two. What's that like a that's a 60% winning percentage. Yeah, 60%. So that is what? That's a 50 win pace the rest of the way, actually. And that's just to get to 500, you know? like Which also might not be the bar. It depend, depends on where all this shakes out. Right. It's tough. It's also it's also going to be con- fun to watch them try. It's going to be fun to watch them try. It's also probably concerning to Memphis that some of the teams that we expect to be better the rest of the way are actually a little bit lower now. And then some teams that like the, the wins that the, the Rockets and the Pelicans and a few of these other teams have banked, you know, that, that is something they have to consider. But for Memphis, they made the trade for Marcus Smart, understanding the John Morant situation. And it can't have been just about this year because, you know, even though this is worse than I'm guessing they expected, it's definitely worse than I expected for the non-Morant games to go. It was, especially with Adams being unavailable for the whole year, we already knew about Clark. It's, It's a lot to do, but at the same point, you know, like one of the things you and I enjoy doing is, well, how does this change the way the team should think? And my answer for the Grizzlies is not really at all. Yeah, I think I'm with you with that. Like they got to see what it looks like with their actual team through the rest of the season. But I mean, the foundation of their team is still going to be like Jaw, Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson. And like, however you fill in around that, that, that doesn't ch- like nothing that's happened this season changes that. It also helps that all of those players plus Marcus Smart are under contract for a long time. Bain signed his extension, Jaws on his, and the math is a little bit tight for the Grizzlies for the 24-25 season. But after that, unless one of their currently young players takes a big enough step to warrant the kind of contract that would come from that, they should be okay tax-wise. And that's good. You know, you can't, I, I still am lamenting that they weren't more aggressive using the non-taxpayer mid-level and some of these other things this year, but they still are a, a talented group. And that financial kind of comfort and with they, they benefit, I mean, eventually they'll have to pay Jaron and that'll get in, but Jaron's next deal will start in 26, 27, should it be, and, and that will be at the Grizzlies or elsewhere. And by then the new TV money will have fully kicked in or at least partially kicked in. Yeah, and they also over, you know, these next few years have contracts that should at least in theory be tradable, sure. you know, and, and that sort of helps alleviate money concerns if and when you have them. One last big picture thing that I wanted to discuss with you, Philadelphia unmitigated success this year and with how things have gone. And I mean, the pressure that seemed like they were under organizationally, the vultures are no longer circling Joel Embiid, though, knowing the NBA, if he ever wanted them to, they absolutely could. I'm still wondering how they're going to be as a playoff team, even though that is a much better worry than the ones that I had going into this year. (laughs) Are you more, are you similarly like unsure about how they're going to fare against the high level competition or are you more confident? Um, I mean, I guess I'm unsure insofar as like we've seen them lose to these teams several times already in several different configurations. And, you know, obviously Maxi has gotten really, really good. And I think DeAnthony Melton makes a ton of sense for the role that they have him in. But they're also counting on guys like like Nick Batum and like Marcus Morris and Kelly Oubre and Patrick Beverly. And I'm not sure necessarily how viable that is playoff wise. And then like we got to see Embiid make it through the full season and especially the postseason without getting hurt. And that has been a, you know, nigh impossible task for him so far. Other than 2019, if memory serves, where they were dispatched for other reasons. <laughs> I loved Cyrus Maxey playing really well against the Timberwolves because Minnesota has the personnel that you would expect to give Tyrese Maxey problems. They have a ton of length on the perimeter. McDaniels did a nice job, I would say, overall on Maxey, and then plenty of length on the interior, even though Gobert dealt with foul trouble, especially in the early going. And for Maxey to have a huge game, he had that big run in the fourth quarter, which effectively sealed it, didn't fully. 
to to do that against a team like that that's really encouraging but as you mentioned the idiosyncrasies of their roster are definitely present and might take some time and and Daryl Morey I, I wrote a whole thing about this for the athletic like they could justifiably be waiting until June, July to add the third best player on the Sixers long term. And there is an opportunity cost to that because they're very good this year. They're currently leading the league in net rating. They also just don't have necessarily the same players available. And because Philadelphia stands as the only championship contender or even plausible one that I can see going into 24 with cap space, Generally speaking, historically, those teams have been able to get strong options to come. And we don't know which of the strong options are going to be interested. My presumption is that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are both going to return to the Clippers because, you know, depending on how everything goes. But that still leaves, you know, Nick Nurse's former players, OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam. Also, they're not required to use that for a free agent. They could theoretically make an imbalanced trade, too. Yeah, that's one of my favorite um, axioms, I guess, is that, you know, cap space does not have to be used on free agents. Um, Unbalanced trades, extorting draft picks from teams like cap space is flexibility, not necessarily something that you specifically give out to players who are free agents. Um, And when you have, you know, a superstar in what is clearly his prime playing at an extraordinarily high level and another guy who looks at least like an emerging star level player and uh, I was going to say his cap hold is really low but with the the cap hold rules his cap hold is not really low it's just like lower than what his salary is going to be most likely for Maxi for Maxi yeah and and that is what gives them the window to get this player and then do it now another there's another argument in favor of trading for an addition now is that you could theoretically then stay over the cap that would allow the Sixers to not have to make as many tough choices on whoever of the Tobias Harris, D'Anthony Melton, everyone else. It's club. also like just sign a guy than to trade for a guy or sign a guy outright in free agency. Like it can be, yeah. Yeah. He's already on your team. There's a, like a theory of the case that you can present to them based on what happens. Although sometimes that doesn't work out. Sometimes you are uh, the Knicks trading for DeAndre Jordan before free agency and giving him a test run so you can sign Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and he does not like it, and then they sign with the Nets. Or Dwight Howard with the Lakers. Yes, Dwight Howard with the Lakers as well. So the argument, and just to briefly run through it, for the Sixers of trading for a player now, presumably some of Harris, Melton, and company would be used as salary matching. But if they, the ones that make it through the trade, having bird rights on them, basically the Sixers would have to give up those bird rights in all likelihood to sign a prominent free agent, whatever player that is, Siakam, Ananobi, whoever. And so if you trade for player X now, then you it would probably lead to a more expensive team, and you can't extend Maxi anyway. That has a specific window which has passed. But you could theoretically have a stronger team you might not have to go as aggressively stars and scrubs as you would if you use cap space to sign a free agent i do think it's also tough for them maybe to do the trade if they're going to make one this season because they're another team where their team that they have right now was not built in the off season it mm-hmm. was built during this season and that I think, you know, the same thing with the the Suns last year where they made the the KD trade in season, they didn't have the capital or the availability of players to surround their guys with the the type of players that they wanted them to. They were able to do that this past off season with, you know, the the Aiden trade and with their various um minimum signings. And and I do think it is tough, you know, if the if the Sixers were to make whatever trade that that we're describing here in season, all of a sudden they'd be left with Embiid, Maxi, whoever this guy is, and like the back end of the Clippers roster that they threw into the Harden trade. And that's tenuous too. Fair. Very fair. Anything else around the league that is piquing your interest? Or if we want to kind of get into this, what are you going to be focusing on over the next two weeks? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously there's the Christmas games and whatnot next week. That's going to be fun. Um, I guess now everybody's trade eligible, so we could start seeing some action. Usually we're not going to see it, you know, till we get closer to February, but teams figuring out, like, who's going to be buying, who's going to be selling, which guys that teams did not extend ahead of their 
you know, free agency or restricted free agency are going to stay in the same places and who's going to get sent out. Uh, I want to see more of I, – I, I do, I do want to see more of the magic because one of the things that I, I was watching them the other day and it's like I, I think that Paolo and Franz are both really, really good and they're both really, really interesting. And I think we can sort of connect this to the Clippers where I think the challenges to building around a big wing duo like that – are going to be similar for Orlando than the ones that the Clippers had. Like the Clippers had been searching for like, you know, we need a point guard. We need an orchestrator and an organizer for several years. And they landed on Harden. I don't know that the magic right now had that guy. And I think one of the ways that shows up is like both Paolo and Franz are like really not shooting well off of passes from each other, which mm. is interesting to me because they're both pretty good playmakers, but they have not set each other up very often, and it's like to me, it seems like they struggle getting from one side of their offense to the other quickly enough, and getting moving. Like they should be out on the break much more often. And like individually, I like Suggs. I like what Cole Anthony has turned into as you know, like an off the bench scorer kind of guy. And it's just like I feel like they need that one other guy who really gets them moving and gets the ball moving at the same time and sort of connects the sides of the offense. I really like that idea, and there are a couple different models for how it could work. The Magic, they could they could trade for that player. They could theoretically do something with cap space, trade, or signing in the offseason. For me, we start—my I, I, shorthand for this for, for years now has been the evaluation window. So we're more, than, we're more than a month from the trade deadline, but we're about a month from when teams start really talking about what they want to do with the trade deadline, which actually kind of matters more. So whether we're discussing the surprising positive teams like the Rockets and the Wolves and the Magic, which which have been a, and the Thunder, significant part of our conversation today, or some of the maybe more disappointing teams so far. Atlanta's going to get Jalen Johnson back in the near term. Phoenix is still figuring it out. Those teams saying, this is what we are, this is what we need, or in some cases, deciding that they're going to be sellers. And so I like to evaluate along with them and kind of think about if I, you know, if, if it were, you know, wrestler in or Landry Fields in Atlanta, like, how would I be feeling about this team? Or, well, I mean, the Lakers potentially with some of the reporting that's out there now, they're going to be an important evaluation team, too, because they could keep their team together or they could combine it for any number of players, most of which seem to play for the Chicago Bulls, some of which <laughs> could theoretically play for the Toronto Raptors, though I haven't heard any smoke about that, which is kind of telling. And... And then also, of course, the Toronto Raptors, where it's like the these teams with the Raptors and the Bulls, a story that we've told before, where they're foundational to the trade deadline because they have these players who could potentially be elsewhere, either by their choice or something else, and, and actually matter. Like, there's a difference between that and, like, oh, you know, player X on, on, an, on a downtrodden team is going to be a buyout guy. No, like, Ananobi, Siakam, DeRozan... To a lesser extent, Levine, and then I'll also mention Alex Caruso. Like all of those players could dramatically impact the playoffs and potentially the the title chase this year. Were they to change teams? I guess we're all on Masai watch for like the fifth consecutive year at the trade deadline. I've <laughs> I've thought about I've thought about writing it. I don't know if it's necessary about a piece like a piece which my my preliminary title not that not that my employers always use it would be why every basketball analyst hates Masai Ujiri right now. <laughs> <laughs> and just like how how bitter we all are that we're that these players are still on that team and like I mean now that Fred Van Fleet's already gone and they're definitely positives I mean Scotty Barnes is having a just such, such a better year I'm thrilled for him in Toronto but also they don't have to keep OG and Pascal Siakam for Scotty Barnes to keep improving like they they can do something else I also else think there. like they have lost too many guys from that title team for nothing they can't lose these they've already lost nothing too. three they've already lost. Three key players from the 2019 championship team with zero return. Oh, I think it's more than that. Um, it's Kawhi, Danny Green, Marcus Gasol, Fred Van Vliet. I hadn't thought about Gasol. You're right. You're right. Marcus Gasol is there. And, and, then, and Serge Ibaka, actually, now that I think about it. Sure. Yeah, Ibaka. And so Ananobi and Siakam could un- potentially join that mix. But you know what? OG didn't play in the playoffs. So that's that, right. that, that doesn't count. Sure. It, it counts in my heart. But no, it, it obviously count. counts. Like, he's but, really good. I'm like... But they they can't lose these guys for nothing. And if the season keeps going the way it is, like 
eventually Masai has to cash in something, even if it, you don't it's, get. It's also what are you keeping them for? Like that. That's right. a part of what makes certain no non sales frustrating. Is I understand the reluctance for you know a team that's successful or a team that's interesting or a team that's fun to want to keep it together. But and yes, the Chicago Bulls have been significantly more fun over the last three weeks than they have been at any point previously. Shout out and to Kobe the, the Kobe, Kobe White, White Assance, yeah, yeah. Kobe White's having a really nice run, and they've been more engaging, honestly, on both ends of the floor since Zach Levine went down. Whether that is correlation or causation will remain to be seen. At some point, maybe I'll go more in depth on that. But like, even with that success for the Bulls and the the Raptors having some interesting notes, it's just like I that for, and I'm sympathetic to fan bases because it's not the most fun thing. But I personally, as as somebody who I, I don't have a team in the NBA, but who has who has fandom in other sports, I personally hate being on the treadmill, like the treadmill media, like the treadmill of you could call it mediocrity or whatever whatever level you want to do. I personally don't find that fun. I would rather be one way or the other, personally. I think it's easier for the Raptors to say, like, we should end this era aggressively and build around the next guy because they already have the next guy in Scotty Barnes. The Bulls do not have that next thing to build around. It, it, would, be, it would be wilderness unless they can get it in those trades. Right. And I do think from that perspective, it's a little tougher. But also, I think there's like less reason for the Bulls to hang on to this team that was like good for two thirds of one season and hasn't been good since. You know, like it's just what are like the Raptors at least are holding on to the vestiges of a team that at one point won the title and was a contender. Um, The Bulls are hanging on to like 40 games where Lonzo Ball was healthy. And Lonzo Ball will not be healthy for the remainder of this year. Hopefully, at some point, yeah, but uh-huh. it does. It, it really does. And, and I wanted to go actually back to the Lakers real quick because you mentioned like they're going to have to make a decision whether to 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 keep this team or make some changes. Uh, that D'Angelo Russell contract was signed to be traded. So it was like <laughs> they are making changes. Like I, I would bet on it pretty strongly. But what kind of changes will be important? And the Lakers are potentially feeling the effects of their success in the in-season tournament. They've had a lot of player absences out. Also, like you know, LeBron that defied the LeBron pathway in his 30s of like having a slower start to the year. It's like it, it's the it's sort of the exception that proves the rule because it's like oh he had something to play for, so he did this, and then now he's out a little bit more. But I'm I'm wondering also like I brought up the idea of the evaluation window. Another one of those that's kind of it's it's different because it's not personnel, but Milwaukee with Adrian Griffin. Like, what are any of these are any of these teams going to look at it and say our players aren't the problem? It's something else, and make potentially a move in those threads. I'm not sure it's going to happen with the Bucks, but it could happen with someone. Even though now, because of the argument Nate and I had, I have an extremely deep vested interest in no coach getting fired this season because then that would be even though it wasn't my number one pick, it, it is distinctly a possibility. Yeah, I think with the Bucks it's interesting because they're twenty one and seven, but it, it seems like almost everybody agrees that they've been like disappointing relative to what and I think even the Bucks seem to agree with that and they're like complaining about stuff all the time. Um but I just lost my train of thought. Well, Damn. I mean one one way of one way of framing that differently is that Milwaukee has exceeded their point differential by the second most in the league and they're 21 and 7 how would we be feeling if they were 18 and 10 or 17 and 11 so like 17 and 11 that's basically the record the Orlando Magic have right now that's the record the Dallas Mavericks have right now and that is more in line with what they've done than what their current 21 and 7 mark is yeah that makes sense I oh I remembered what I was going to say now I view it like uh for any uh, football fans out there, I view it like the Eagles for a lot of this season where the results that they're getting or were getting early in the season were really good. They just were not necessarily in line with what people were seeing on the field. And there were a lot of complaints about how things were just a little bit off. And I think Milwaukee's offense, similar to the Eagles offense, is getting these unbelievable results right now. And I think that that I do think Milwaukee's offense looks better than people thought Phillies did. They were just like hitting these big splash plays. But the defense in Milwaukee obviously has been an issue. The rebounding has been an issue. The transition defense in particular has been a very big issue. And then it seems like dudes just have not been happy at times throughout the season, certainly in in specific instances uh, with specific players that have been reported out there. And it's just like, 
how much do you hold on to the we're 21 and 7 and how much do you hold on to these things are major issues and do we have the the time and the inclination and the personnel in all aspects uh, to, to fix them by the time they need to be fixed. It's a great point. It's something that we'll hopefully get more detail on over the next couple months. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent basketball work at lastnightbasketball.com. And lastnightbasketball.com slash realgm is a way to get a 30% discount, which is awesome. And love his work. The combination of doing text and video, something I can't do, but something I deeply appreciate and all those who can do it well. And so his video on Kawhi in particular goes through some of the different play types and what he does well. And I thought that was really useful. You can also, of course, find Jared on social media and you can follow him there. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download Real GM Radio and whatever podcast player you use. It can be Spotify, Apple, really wherever. And if there's a podcast player that we are not on, please let me know. And we will try to make that happen. That, of course, goes beyond my pay grade, but we have smart people who can do that. And it's been a thing at times in the past. You can also help other people find the show. And that's leaving a rating and review in the podcast player if you're choosing, word of mouth, social media, whatever you really want to do there. But the single most important thing for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsor. And for us, that is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Of course, I talked about that a lot earlier. And you can also check out my other work. Written work is at The Athletic. I talked about it a little bit in the piece with or in the conversation with Dubin. Have a piece on Jeremy Grant that I think is going to come out in the week between Christmas and New Year's. It will be submitted to editorial by the time you listen to this. So whenever it gets published, it gets published. Then Dunked On, Dunked On Prime with Nate Duncan. That's going really well. And you can, it's also a great holiday gift if you haven't done that yet because you don't need to get it physically or anything like that. Then we're doing the NBA strategy stream on League Pass. We actually did two broadcasts this past week, and then we're taking a little bit of a break for the holidays, and we'll be back. I believe it's January 9th or something in that vicinity. It's going to be a fun game, though. It's going to be Wolves Magic. And then we're also going to be doing some NBA Ricochet, which is on playback. That's going to be more opportunistic when we have the avenues for that one. Both of us are at home, and we're watching watching games live and everything like that, but we enjoy doing that. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That's an absolute promise. I'm not the greatest at getting back to people, but I, I do read it. It goes into my inbox. That's what I tell people it is, because that's what I intend to do. So thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays, whatever you celebrate, and make it a great day.